You are now listening to episode 82 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. My name is Brian Davis, and this is my show. Here I am talking with Rob Wolf. I got a chance to catch up with him at the tail end of his uh, book promo tour. His new book, Wired to Eat, is available everywhere books are sold. I think that's what they always say. His previous book, The Paleo Solution, had a mighty big impact on my life, and so I've been a huge fan of Rob's ever since. You know, and uh, he puts out a lot of content, uh, and so... After whatever this has been, six, seven plus years of taking in information from him and then having a chance to talk to him for an hour, I feared I might get a little lost in the weeds. So for the first time ever, I actually proposed a, a tiny bit of an outline for this episode. Um, I thought if we could uh, do one hour and three little segments. That, that was the goal. That was the template. Uh, kind of uh, number one, how to heal the minds of lost health seekers. Two, a little piece on um, sustainability and sustainability as the model for wellness. And then three, how to thrive in a jujitsu world. I think we did a pretty damn good job considering you know, we had one hour. I, uh, I'm, I mostly did my best to just keep quiet. I threw in some useless anecdotes and swore a lot for whatever reason. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, there are your warnings and the things you can look forward to. I hope you enjoy this episode as much uh, as I enjoyed making this call. And as always, I thank you for listening. Hello, Rob Wolf. Top of the morning. What's happening? Hey, uh, checking in on a, let's see, 2 p.m. Wow. This is early for me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't uh, talk to humans by day, so this should be interesting. Cool. Cool. Exciting. <laughs> I normally wait till the wee hours of the night, you know, to chat a bit. Um, you know, I've only waited, well, let's see, about uh, six and a half years to talk to you. So, oh, okay. okay. I'm hoping we uh -oh. could probably get this all wrapped up in about maybe seven, ten minutes, you know. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Considering all the things you cover, it's nearly impossible for me to um, even begin. And then also, my fear is that we'll just get uh, caught up in some rat hole quagmire. And then the conversation will drift off for an hour. So I'm going to try to keep it focused. 
The other Ooh. night I came up with three ideas. Um, one, how to unfuck the minds of lost health seekers. Two, sustainability. And three, how to thrive in a jujitsu world. I think we could uh, cover these. We could three. probably do some fair fair treatment in that time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Cool. So, how has the book tour business been? Is it uh, worse than writing the book? Um, I mean, I've done. I, I mainly focused on podcasts this go around. So the hmm. only in-person stuff I did was actually here in Reno. I actually did several gigs and we had really wonderful response with that. Um, after I did the Joe Rogan show, we did one gig kind of down in LA and Malibu, but I, w I was already down there. So I just really didn't do uh, a ton of brick and mortar stuff. We did a lot of it the first go round. I mean, it just crushed me. Like it's always great to see people in real life and you hear great stories and you build, you know, kind of life, you know, lifelong connections and everything. But I mean, it, it's, uh, it's just a lot, you know, yeah, one, the, the one travel in person stuff. on the road. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, you know, uh, I mean, uh, gosh, I think I've done close to a hundred. I ended up banking like 60 podcasts before the th the book launched. And then subsequently I've done maybe 40 or 45 afterwards. And I mean, you're just able to, Look into just just a ton of different genres and and you know people that have never really heard about any of this stuff and then the you know the host can kind of take it in in their own direction. Sometimes we didn't even literally didn't even mention the book. Like we just got off on some other you know interesting tangent and then it's like oh by the way you know there's this book and you know check it out and that's totally good to go. So cool. Yeah, I was wondering um, how your approach to that was. I mean, are, I was wondering if you were just going to reach your all you know what is already your core audience anyways so what right. types of shows had were you on libertarian shows what uh, not specifically I, I think i did do like one kind of political oriented show but i mean it, it's just there's a man i mean we we literally just went down itunes and kind of panged the folks in different you know like health and wellness business um Gosh, I forget the different different subgenres, and and then we just kind of put it out there that we were, you know, looking to come on folks' shows. So if they if they were willing to have me on, then we did the best job we could to book it. And it, actually, this week is kind of the the last week of shows I'm going to record, really promoting the book. I might do maybe like one a week starting in June, but May is going to be like absolutely nothing related to the <laughs> nice. book at all. Yeah, good idea. Yeah. And then circle back around in, in June and maybe do a, a little bit here and there to spin the wheels. But I mean, it it's, uh, seems to be selling well and we're getting good reviews and, you know, people are talking about it on, on social media and all that. So I, I think that it, it's got about as much escape velocity as it's going to get at this point. All right. Gotcha. It seems uh, mostly... I've heard you report this, and I hear this from other people, that it seems like most people are relying on you as a business guru at this point, <laughs> not so much for health and wellness. To some degree, I mean, in almost more like a career path. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, know, yeah, like right. Divining, divining rod. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's been kind of, kind of interesting, like a, a huge amount of email volume has shifted, you know, where before it was like, I've got poop problems. Now it's, I had poop problems. I really like 
this health stuff, um, you know, but I'm not really too sure where to, to plug in and how to go about doing that. So yeah, I've ended up devoting a lot of time to that. Interestingly. I think it's great. I get a lot of questions from people and I just recently got an again, and it was about, you know, all this talk about strength, conditioning, wellness, as it associates to time in the gym. Whereas how do we play this out in the real life? Why is that never the story? It's always gym time, gym this, gym that. Macros, micros, but what about real life, real living? And I, I think that might have something to do with a, a few of these topics. Right, uh, un- right. Unfucking your mind, <laughs> sustainability, and jiu-jitsu world. Yeah, totally. So if, totally. You're, if someone is um, in a on the wrong end of health and they need to get some, some betterment, do you have some uh, first step approaches in this book? Yeah, I, and you know, part of what I I do is is really trying to um, set a framework so that people are s- starting at a spot where it's not all steeped in emotion and drama and a sense of failure. Like, and and this is kind of a weird thing for me to arrive at because I, I honestly have the emotional acuity of a turnip. Like I, I, um, I like mechanisms. I'm kind of more like a Vulcan than a human, I, I think in many ways. Um, but this emotional piece was just something that was popping up again and again and again, you know, people would do paleo or whole 30 or keto or whatever. And they're motoring along. They're, they're just crushing stuff. And then three or six months down the road, they're just gone or they're out of the gym or whatever. And you check in with them. You're like, hey, what happened? And at the end of the day, there was this kind of story around, well, it it, it felt hard. And then I would say, but you're making great progress. I'm like, yeah, I guess so. But it felt harder than what it should be. And so I felt like I was a failure. And so I just quit. Mm. And, And so you know, this whole like failure and guilt and sense that it was hard, like for a long time in the back of my head, I had this idea around, well, you know, evolutionary biology, we're wired for a different time frame, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't have a really good way of kind of articulating and framing that. But a paper that came across my my desk uh, almost four years ago, I think it ended up being kind of the, the genesis for my paleo FX talk three years ago really was interesting because it talked about the neuroregulation of appetite and optimum foraging strategy. And it basically made like an energy or thermodynamic argument for this idea that we're wired to eat more and move less and to assume anything different is nuts like that. That's the way that every other organism on the planet that moves to get its, its food has to operate. If it consistently burns more energy then what it obtains in its environment, it dies. And, you, you know, uh, so this we is are... the exact opposite of conventional wisdom. The exact opposite of conventional wisdom. And, you know, that conventional wisdom is almost like a, a quaint Mark Twain, you know, witticism. It's, God, you know, it just, just eat less and move more. Mm-hmm. Everything in moderation. I mean, how in, intellectually reasonable is that it's the most reasonable thing in the world and it's also completely wrong you know i mean it it, uh it doesn't work in practice it doesn't support the you know the modeling of of you know the the formation of our genetics it doesn't support the modeling of any other organism living on the planet you know so 
it, it's uh, it, it's one of the the most epic failures in all of of history. So it, it's fascinating. But you know the the book starts off trying to unpack all that emotionality because I saw so many people get into this situation where despite the best effort of giving them this like Arthur Murray dance school, put your left foot here and put your right foot there and just keep marching along. That was all good, but you still had all the dialogue in their head. And if we didn't deal with that dialogue in the head about, Oh, this is hard or I'm a failure. You know, my desire to eat the whole bag of sea salt and vinegar potato chips means that I'm weak and I'm flawed that's all bullshit. Like, yeah. that's not accurate. That is not willpower true. Willpower be and damned, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we can't rely on willpower. And and when I, in framing that thing, then that's kind of the beginning. It's like, okay, we need to unpack all this baggage. We can't even think about protein, carbs, fat. We can't think about exercising until we get you into a spot where your head is straight and you're not going to beat yourself up. The first time that you're you're sitting in front of a, a bowl of potato chips and you have some, like you you would be nuts not to generally. And 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 you know as time goes along and as you shift your neuroregulation of appetite, then you will look at foods like potato chips or cheesecake, and it's less and less like cocaine and more and just <laughs> more looks like inanimate objects. It's yeah, it, not even necessarily food. <laughs> yep, you know. Yep. I was just thinking this. If I if there was an Al Pacino pile sized pile yeah, of cocaine exactly. in front of me, it would have no effect on me. It wouldn't ping any center in me. It, 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 have, it has nothing to reach in me. It would be just be looking like at at a non item. It, it you know it has right. no effect. Right. Whereas, and, and at some point most so people it requires no willpower, that. right? Yeah. Right. Right. And that's a process. And and there are some people for whom they never quite get there. I mean, there's a spectrum on this stuff. And that's another really important element of the book is that um, we're all very similar, but we to the degree that we are different, it's enough to really make one size fits all recommendations and one size, you know, kind of fits all coaching kind of strategies really challenging. Like it will work for a certain cross section of people, but then it's going to end up failing a whole bunch of other folks. So you've got to be able to, to keep some nuance in there. So, you know, like in general as, yeah, you know, as people eat better and they sleep better, their gut heals, then they will tend to look at these really, you know, over the top types of foods, less and again, less and less and like, like cocaine more and more like an adamant object. Some people may not really ever get there. They're always going to have to employ some degree of a self-defense strategy. You know, don't don't be around it all that much. Don't clearly don't have it sitting in your house in the pantry. Mm-hmm. You know, where at, at eleven o'clock at night you're like, oh man, we do have the sea salt and vinegar potato chips in there. I'm going to go have two, mm-hmm. and two ends up being two, two bags. Two, you know? right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It, part of the pro- part of the problem might be the sizes of things we buy. Like for me. I make the mistake of buying Costco-sized salted nuts. Well, I'll eat the whole goddamn thing in two days, like an, some right. type of animal right. that is out of control. Then I go full Al Pacino on salted nuts for yeah, no reason, and, and you know, and I do yeah, that on what? top of a steak. Like it, I've always said, all all calorie intake aside, let's just let all those arguments go. If I eat all my normal meals, I can pile, shit pile nuts on top of my standard diet somehow. I right. don't know how that's possible, but it but it is. And I'll still eat the same amount 
and I can eat half a pound of nuts, you know? Right. Right. And, and you know, I described uh, uh, that person in my first book. He, he, funny enough, we, we called him Jorge, but he, his name is nothing like Jorge. But he was actually our lawyer for a long, long time. Really fascinating guy. We started working with him. He was five foot nine, four hundred and twenty pounds, and um, this guy was just a disaster. Like he had not drank liquid that was unflavored and/or unsweetened in literally like fifteen years. The guy actually ended up in the hospital once due to dehydration. Because he didn't, I don't know where he was. I never really got the background story. But the only thing available to drink was water. But he didn't have access to like soda, be it diet soda or otherwise, or some sort of flavored water deal. And the thought of drinking regular water was so disgusting to him that he just, you know, just went went the consumption of water to the point that he ended up in the hospital. And, and, uh, but we had to, you know, we had to start this guy with like, okay, you're doing full sugar soda. We're going to do diet soda. And now we're going to shift from diet soda to these like juice accented waters. And it, it, it took us six or eight months to get him to a spot where like drinking just kind of iced tea and coffee and stuff like that was like, okay, I can do this. And then he eventually drank water, you know, and that was pretty amazing. But but he was one of these guys that, um, he was making some progress. Like he had lost some weight. We got him below 400 pounds, but it it just wasn't stratospheric progress. You know, it was like, we're, we're moving forward, but it's not spectacular. And I, I started poking around and what he was up to. And I said, Hey, why don't you just write down everything that you're reading? And, um, what, uh, you know, he wrote, wrote some stuff down and he had like an afternoon snack, which was nuts. And I'm like, how, okay, nuts. How, how many are you doing? And he, and he, he made like the hand gesture, you, you know, you know, like Costco container of almonds. Mm-hmm. And I'm like in one sitting and he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. That's 3,500 calories <laughs> in one sitting. Plus his three other meals to your point. And uh, and so we did is we're like, okay, man. Um, And and the reason why I did that is because in Lauren Cordain's original books, he said, you can eat an unlimited amount of these paleo foods and you will lose weight and blah, blah, blah. And and technically he was losing weight. It just, it it was slow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so we, I said, Hey, can we for a week, um, just have you weigh, weigh and measure out two ounces of nuts and that's your afternoon snack. He's like, oh yeah, sure, we'll do that. And then, I mean, like the, the weight just like melted off this guy. And now he's probably about 200 pounds. And I mean, he's built like a gladiator. Like he was a big, thick bone dude, like huge wrists, huge knees, um, carried a lot of muscle even at, at that higher weight. And he's uh, continued to lift weights and uh, for his cardio even though he's a lawyer he has a firewood delivery service as his part like his weekend gig and so he'll go cut down a tree he owns his property and he'll cut down a tree and limb it and then he he basically like um uses a chainsaw to cut it at like 22 inch lengths Mm -hmm. and then he splits it he doesn't use an electric or a gas-powered splitter he splits it with a a maul and sledgehammer and and that's how he i like this guy it, it, it's legit. Yeah. It's legit. Yeah. So, it, so this is the transformation we had on that guy. And I know that's a huge diversion, uh, but, but the, you know, the nut story is interesting. So, I mean, um, quality really does matter a lot and it, it still is fascinating. You know, people get really wrapped up on the, like, is it only calories? Is it just insulin or whatever? But 
he was, in my opinion, probably still consuming more than what he really needed, but he was still losing some weight. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know if that was just water weight because it was otherwise kind of lower carb or, you know, what was going on. Clearly, when we got him at a, a mild hypocaloric state, which was like 3,000 calories lower than what he was before, <laughs> stuff took off without a doubt. But, you know, it was still yeah, interesting. Yeah. It Whereas, is interesting, yeah. 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 yeah, I always say uh, if I I have a superpower, if I need to gain five pounds, I can very easily. And that's just go buy some Costco nuts. It's just that easy. And right. I just right. eat them on top of my normal meals. But uh, I would maybe argue the yeah. uh, Costco uh, chocolate covered nuts would possibly be even the more expedient route to that, yeah. which is even more hyper palatable. Yeah. The, my problem was I probably wouldn't even eat them, but, um, well, dark chocolate at home plus the nuts. Then there you go. Everyone has their thing, right? Right, right. It, it, and that really is an important thing to to mention is that. Uh, so uh, Gretchen Rubin, she she wrote a, a number of New York Times bestselling books. One of the most recent is Better Than Before, and it, it's basically a, a really good deep dive into behavior change, which is kind of where the rubber hits the road. Like people want to do a huge number of different things, whether it's learn a language or you know lose weight or start exercising, and and the the changing of behaviors is is kind of a bugger. And she kind of helps people to bucket themselves into different categories. And some of the big categories are abstainers versus moderators. A moderator is someone that they can have a box of Twinkies in the in pantry and maybe once a week they have, have one or half of one or whatever and it's really not that big a deal. And an abstainer is someone that they, they just can't have it around. But what's interesting, there's a couple of interesting things. One, in surveying people, she discovered that 95% of dietitians are moderators. And they're telling everybody else on the planet that they need to be moderators mm-hmm. or they are disordered in their eating. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the, the dietitians are, are shitting the bed with 50% of the population right out of the gate, just, just before you even get started. And then there's this other piece to this thing, which, you know, for sweet stuff, I'm, I'm, I can kind of take it or leave it. Like, it's not that big of a deal for me. But that sea salt and vinegar potato chip story, the the salted nuts, particularly if, it, you know, like yeah. the Blue Diamond salted and smokehouse nut deal. Right. There's no off switch for mm. me on that. There's literally no amount that I, I couldn't consume. And so it's different from person to person what that trigger is and what constitutes a, a food that could launch you into that that Al Pacino, like face down in the desk kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And, and you just need to be honest with yourself about that and there's nothing wrong with it again this is good evolutionary engineering that there are things that are super interesting to us that we would like push an old woman down in the street and step on her spine to get to that bag of sea salt and vinegar potato chips like there's there's good you know reasons for that from our evolutionary past it just works against us today when we can work from home order this stuff Mm -hmm. to our front door expend no effort, you, you know, in obtaining it. And then we can order in. Uh, so like we, we get some of the uh, Epic brand uh, chicharrones, the pork rinds, which are phenomenal, but they started off just plain pork rinds and they were really good. But now they have like barbecue pork rinds and then the sea salt and vinegar pork rinds. And it's like, Oh damn, these things have become yeah. hyper palatable now. And I can like the, the, uh, 
the barbecue ones I really can't keep in the house. Like the regular ones, I'll, I'll have like four or five of them. I'm good to go. The, the barbecue ones, I will eat the whole bag in a sitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's like, oh, I, I can't really do that, you I, know? On a previous podcast I had with my good uh, urban ag friend, Maurice Small, we had about a half-hour conversation just about Epic and the whole history and story of the company as it relates to everything from health of individuals to health of, you know, an agronomical approach, sustainability, mm-hmm. business. Uh, that was quite a conversation. Uh, that little company, Epic, is a, is a great microcosm of um, the state of affairs in paleo, health, wellness, business. It's, it's quite a story. It really is. And, you know, it's uh, uh, the jury is not out yet. You know, like there were a lot of people that were freaked out about the um, the General Mills acquisition and all that type of stuff and a lot of gnashing of teeth. And I had a really crazy suggestion, which was, hey, why don't we see if they fuck this up? And if they do, then we can cut their heads off and stick it on a pike and, and parade them around the, the town square. Yeah, but, and the thing is, even if they do fuck it up, it's no harm to you. This is, it, it really isn't. I mean, right. that that's kind of the irony here is, is yeah. you know, but uh, that, that, that's assuming a level of sophistication and self-awareness that I just don't see exist in the world. So, right. um, you, you know, but it, it, my, my thing, my standards were so much lower. It was like, hey, why don't we wait until they actually screw this up and then you guys can freak out and have a, a fit over it. But, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating story where you have a lot of people that desperately want change in the world but then they oftentimes never think about well what is that change going to look like and this that is change exactly is going right. to yes change it's, it's going it to look happen? like and yeah how does it happen and it, it it by necessity it's going to take advantage to some degree of this uh economies of scale on the distribution channels like i i've had lots of conversations with people like alan savory joel salatin a really good friend of mine russ concert who is a uh, retired systems engineer for Shell Oil. And I, I kind of threw out to all these guys. I'm like, you know, when I rattle this around, I, I see kind of an optimization here of, of uh, decentralized production, but really taking advantage of this centralized distribution channels and, and uh, all that super efficient infrastructure. And they're like, oh, without a doubt, you know, that, that, that's definitely where the rubber hits the road. And so, it, you know, it, it's um, it's kind of funny because the folks that were, you know, decrying um, Epic getting picked up by General Mills, it's kind of like, well, how did you want them to get this all around the country? And how, you know, Epic just ended up purchasing a 1,500-head uh, uh, bison herd to become, to start creating horizontal and vertical integration. Like, they, they've purchase land and or, or lease the land and then they have the animals on the land and they're going to expand this herd and they want to want to have the bison herd up to like 50,000 head at some point and all this stuff it'd be massive and and this is where they're gonna you know they're like it, they recognize that although people are more comfortable in general with beef cattle are de- derived out of uh, east asian um wet climates and although they're an okay fit in some areas of the Americas. The reality is the the American bison is actually evolved to the to the same. It's the mm-hmm. the most well adapted and everything. And so that's really the thing that we should be running with. You know, I, I just think that's 
brilliant and beautiful and the the folks that um you know take issue with that on on so many levels like i i really have a profound desire to throat punch them but uh <laughs> I, I clearly do not so yeah do not let it go <laughs> Yeah, or at least at least a good sleeper hold like that one you can come back from faster. But yeah, you're out in six seconds, but you'll wake up soon enough. Right. And you just you just do it long enough to make sure they void their their bowels and bladder and their britches. And then then you let the thing go. So, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of what we were talking about just before the epic break was basically you pretty much uh, defined mismatch evolutionary mismatch we have tools that worked in our favor evolutionarily and now those hardwired bits of us get spun and turned around against us because of our basically our lifestyle this right. this civilized right. world has devious ways of destroying us whether it be chronic stress access to food which is the strangest thing of all you know that we have too much access to mm-hmm. to food, mm-hmm. <laughs> food stuff for, for the first time in history i believe more people died from like there was a world health organization statement you, more people died due to diseases of affluence than died from malnutrition and infectious disease for, for the first time in history and on, on the one hand that's a monumental moment in human history like that's actually a pretty laudable achievement on the one hand on the other hand it, it's also a a beacon that like okay we need to get a handle on some of this shit you know yeah yeah yes when people are simultaneously morbidly obese and malnourished we have created some fuckery so you right. know right that is a right. magic trick yeah yeah yeah, yeah, but it, it, it it's interesting, and you know this this doesn't get too far afield. And I know the the folks that follow your work, like clearly you're really steeped in you know evolution, economics, thermodynamics. Like you you get this stuff, and so I I assume the folks that follow you probably dig that as well. Otherwise, they would go listen to somebody else. Yeah, but you know, my listeners are smarter than me. Trust me. Okay, okay. I can okay, tell by okay. the uh, feedback I get. <laughs> okay, there you go. That, hey, dumbass. You know. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, here's an interesting thing. Um, there are a, a lot of folks that when you throw out this idea of like an ancestral health approach or evolutionary medicine or whatever, the arms across, the head is down, the affect is closed. Like, the, you know, the, the, the conversation goes nowhere effectively. But here's an interesting aside. Unilever, which is one of the world's largest producers of, of both pharmaceuticals and essentially junk food, manufactured, you know, processed food. In 2013, they invested $30 million into beginning evolutionary medicine research. Now, clearly, some of this stuff is focused into d- drug, you know, mechanistic delivery and stuff like that, seeing if this evolutionary medicine te- template can provide any insights there and it might well there might be some good stuff that comes out of that but part of this research continues to go into how to make food hyper palatable and habituative to to make it habit forming and there is no compunction on the parts of these folks about this like it, it, the what's the lays potato chip tagline yeah, but you, you can't, can't eat just, just one. one. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. like I'll, I'll take that bet all day long. So the, the people who 
really geek out on making food hyper palatable and addictive. They study the neuroregulation of appetite. They really understand neurophysiology. They study optimum foraging strategy to figure out how to make things novel enough so that we bypass that off switch, which is the normal part of the neuroregulation of appetite. And then the, another piece to this, the, the social media purveyors, very early on when they started getting a sense that there was something really unique, interesting about things like Facebook and Twitter, they got in and started studying what was going on there. And lo and behold, you know, this, the novelty, the, the potential for new experience was hitting those same hedonic centers of the brain, <laughs> releasing dopamine, and it's habit forming. This is the and internet I, I, porn of foodstuffs. It yeah. is. Yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. And you know, this stuff is highly addictive. And it, 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 interestingly, the social media displaces real community in the way that junk food displaces real food. And they operate in similar mechanisms and have similar negative consequences. And, and the point that I really want people to get out of this is that the people developing social media, the people developing refined, highly processed foods – they fully embrace this evolutionary template. They fucking get it in yep. spades. Yep, yep. The medical community. It's easy though. Uh, it's easy though because it that is what pays their bills. Oh yeah, yeah. You but understand it, 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 it. They they it, love it, it because it, it pays for the average it, person. It's not. I don't. See, they don't. They don't see the payday. I don't think. They they don't. But it, 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 here's it, it, the really cryptic thing for me: the gatekeepers. The bulk of the medical establishment, particularly the dietetics profession, when you suggest that this evolutionary medicine template is a value, they label it a fraud, a fad, and dismiss it out of hand. So the gatekeepers who are entrusted to protect us have their heads into the sand to the reality of this thing even existing. They don't even think it exists. It's basically like flatter, you know, Copernican universe versus flatter universe type thing. It doesn't even exist. And then on the on the, I think you that's know, an important side. point because they're not lying. They're in a complete cognitive dissonance. They can't see it. Complete denial. We cannot literally even see it. It's like a color blindness deal where you can't see red and you're you're looking at, at this pattern that is all in red and you're like dude I can't see anything here mm -hmm. like they literally cannot see it they they lack the framework to see it and so if people are noodling about this stuff at all like I I kind of came to this understanding in in writing wired to eat like this this thing of oh the people making food and social media study evolutionary medicine all the time and understand it at a really sophisticated level the gatekeepers who are supposed to protect us don't think credible idea. Holy shit. Like, it, it, and so, it, you know, it, it, wait, what I suggest out there, what I throw out there for people related to this, even if you still have some reservations about this whole, like, paleo diet gig or evolutionary medicine or ancestral health, it, just noodle on if what I proposed is accurate, and it is, it's pretty easy to validate that, you know, where Unilever has invested money and, you know, they, they talk about it and everything. It's very easy to vet this stuff out. So if that's true, that the food producers and the social media manufacturers are really geeked out on this stuff and they're making tons of money and it's clearly addictive and dysfunctional for, for human health and happiness, and then our gatekeepers are completely ignorant of this, what does that mean? I have some ideas about it. Um, you know, go through that logical process mm -hmm. of discovery, 
And then what do you take away from it? Like I have some ideas, but again, I would prefer people actually come up with their own ideas because hopefully it's better than mine. I have some takeaways, but I would prefer other folks to formulate something because then it's theirs and it means a lot more. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it was about four years ago now. I snuck in a question to um, Dr. Nissen. He's the head of cardiology at the Cleveland Clinic. And um, I just looked it up on my own website because I actually documented it. Mm. The Cleveland Clinic had a little um, Q&A with Dr. Nissen. And uh, here's my question. I asked him, do the good doctors place any emphasis or utilize evolutionary principles when prescribing a diet slash lifestyle for heart? Dot, dot, dot. And Dr. Nissen's response, in my clinic, when I see a Neanderthal, I prescribe a caveman diet. So that is a perfect example of what is just exactly what you were describing. This is the top heart hospital in the world. Their top doctor, Dr. Nissen, just completely dismissing even the idea of an evolutionary approach to diet and lifestyle. Right. Wild. That's wild, you know? Yeah, well, you, you know, the uh, uh, the head of cardiothoracic surgery in Chico, at least while I was living there, uh, he was at Enloe Hospital, a uh, Spanish guy. I'm totally blanking on his name. He was born in Barcelona, trained at multiple places, ended up in Chico, California for reasons I have no idea. But um, uh, he was overweight, had some some health problems himself. One of his patients actually recommended my first book. He read the book and he's like, oh, this totally makes sense. Evolutionary medicine, discord, discordance theory, tweaked his diet along these parameters. Everything was great. And uh, uh, he totally got it. And he started recommending this approach to all of his patients. And he, he said, if all of my patients would eat this way, I would never perform another, uh, you know, cardiothoracic surgery in my career. And uh he actually invited me to speak to their symposia, which happens each year for the folks that have gone through surgery. And uh, uh, the dietetics department, which was you know clearly part of the hospital, they ended up blocking me being able to talk to his <laughs> heart patients. It, it, apparently, it was quite a drama fest on the backside of the hospital, like um, cardiothoracic surgery, physical therapy, and I think nursing were like pro-paleo and then dietetics, cardiology, the pill pushers, and the, uh, man, who else was, I, I forget what it was, but it basically split mm -hmm. the hospital down, split. down, you know, pretty <laughs> even line and, uh, huge <laughs> drama over yeah. this stuff. And he was like, I'm the head of this program and I want this man to talk to my patients. And, and, uh, but you know, even though he had a lot of sway, he didn't end up having the, the ultimate say, and it was so controversial to the rest of the folks that they, they ended up having me blocked from talking directly to the patients. What they did settle on is having me do a CME talk, a continuing medical education talk to the medical staff. And I was just a raging asshole asking people effectively like, uh, you know, board certification questions and calling people out, basically exposing that they had forgotten all their physiology and biochemistry as soon as they got out of school. I'm sure that they could probably, you know, harvest a pancreas much more effectively than I could. But, you know, uh, I, I was 
people were very glad when they were done with that. And, <laughs> and uh, I was a raging asshole. But it's interesting, you know, like it this is, guy totally got it. Yeah. And yeah. it's funny that he, I, sometimes it's hard to tell, is that a hospital or is that the Church of Scientology? Like, right. you, you can't right. speak? What? Like, they, right. they're, they're not permitted to listen to you? Your ideas are, right. are, that, are that wrong or evil, you know? Well, and, and here's a controversial one. I'll just throw this one out there. But yet they let... Um, Priests, rabbis, and every religious affiliated entity you could imagine go in and talk to people. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of science behind any of that either. But I guess that's mm-hmm. that's saying something different. But, yeah. Yeah. Being pro-science is uh, supremely popular right now. It's so popular they have marches about it. And people carry posters saying how awesome science is, as if science gives a fuck about people marching with posters but so there's right, my political right, rant but, right <laughs> but then when you actually try to talk about science the science of food health nutrition soil suddenly you get a lot of deaf ears right right well and, and if you throw a little economics in there then, then it, you've it created definitely a mess. Gets, yeah then you're you've screwed. definitely created a mess and you know the um the the sustainability story, like I'm so Diana Rogers and I are working on a book with this, and it, it's both exciting, terrifying, and and frustrating because on the one hand, um, because I do have a really deep faith in in uh, uh, the science of economics and and thermodynamics and whatnot. Um, I really think all this stuff is going to sort itself out at some point. Now, if we put some concerted planning into it. It may sort itself out in a way that looks less like Mad Max and and more like you know you know kind of a nice place to live. But it, it's going to sort itself out one way or the other. And this this whole notion of we are going to save the planet is one of the most hubristic, mm. egocentric things I've ever heard. The planet can give two shits. This is about uh, Joel, Joel Salatin's Nature Bats Last. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, and and uh, evolution it, within the evolutionary history, the rule is extinction, not the exception. Mm-hmm. And so if we end up, you know, doing ourselves in, we're only following the rule. And so, you, you know, let's at least be honest, like what we're trying to do, what we're hoping to do. And clearly we would like, I think, to do good by the other organisms on this, this planet that we share with them. But really at the end of the day, we're saving our own skin if we're effective with this. So, you know, there's just a lot of dishonesty and like kind of, ego driven in this stuff. Then the the fascinating thing is you have these two kind of extreme positions. One of them is is I, I who I really respect, but this kind of Matt Ridley rational optimist story, which is that technology will win the day. Um, we'll we'll always find an innovative uh, uh, workaround. And historically, we have you know like the Malthusian time bomb stories of the 1960s you know when when before uh burlog in, invented dwarf wheat and a, a bunch of other interesting uh, uh high yield um you know uh, uh agricultural products like that we were looking kind of shaky like some you know big uh, areas of starvation could have been a reality but we did innovate around that but then the other side of this are some people that i really respect like uh chris martinson alan savory we're like, yeah, you know, this technology thing is really amazing, but it's uh, we're heading into a world that is different in that um, oil, even though there may be a lot of oil still left in the, the ground, every 
ounce of it we get out is costing a little bit more and 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 it's costing both more in terms of money and in terms of the energy invested into getting it out of the ground like in Saudi Arabia um one oil's worth of energy uh put into oil extraction produces 100 barrels of oil currently in the United States that's about 1 to 5 so we've already narrowed that gap and once you get that gap down to effectively like one to one point five, one to one. It's no longer energetically viable to do that, and and this is where stuff effectively dies. Like the, the, the life is driven by an energy excess, and it's largely solar fueled. And and uh, you know maybe there's some workarounds with solar. Maybe there's some workarounds with with nuke. And this is some of the stuff that I have problems coming to term with, you know, um, solar power is really amazing, but the, these things are dependent on rare earth minerals and these rare earth yeah. minerals require enormous amounts of energy to mine them. And they are becoming incredibly more scarce, like in a, in a reverse exponential, we've mined everything that has been easy and it only gets more and more hard from here. And as it gets more hard, it requires more energy to do more with this stuff, but yet we need more of this stuff in an exponential fashion. And this is where I, I my head starts kind of spinning and I'm kind of like, okay, in like 20 or 30 years, we're, we're really legitimately going to have a problem. Yeah. But what I don't know is, is, you know, am, is this really a case where this time is different or am I in the, the Malthusian, you know, doomsday or poopy pants scene where I'm just not seeing the the amazing, you know, potential of technology and innovation yeah, and all I that mean, stuff. And I honestly don't know. I, I believe technology will save the day, but it might just be for itself, <laughs> not us. It's like it's in like artificial intelligence. <laughs> exactly, right, right. Yeah, yeah, it could be, could be. <laughs> the other problem with solar is, is our innate, our current mismatch. We're not using solar doing, during solar hours. We're storing it so that we can use it 24-7 anywhere in the world, which is, this is where it builds this toxic complexity uh, to, right. to build the batteries, to store the energy. If we were just right. uh, distributing this energy as it was needed, as it was being produced, that would be one thing. That's the way plants are doing it now, right? They take it in, right. they use it, and then they're done. Then it's dark. But... We refuse. <laughs> Let's talk about photoperiod and circadian for for human health. When yeah, I first heard I mean, this, I yeah, thought yeah. this has got to be just woo. It's, come on, this can't be real, right? Yeah, and funny enough, it's probably more important than the food side and, of anything, the, the I whole know, story. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, where where to start on that? I mean, it, it's. Uh, Every organism, I think even like deep ocean trench organisms, I, I think still have like kind of wake sleep cycles that are somewhat entrained to the, the surface light, even though there's absolutely no way that light like reaches them. So, I mean, literally every organism on the planet um, has activity and reproduction um basically tied into these these light dark cycles mm -hmm. and it, it drives uh hormones it drives reproduction um when this process becomes disordered this is an interesting thing and my good friend dr kirk parsley is a retired navy seal and then got out of the teams went to med school and has been uh for i think like eight years administered the health 
uh, concerns for the West Coast seals. And he had a great observation, which was that evolution has had four plus billion years to figure out how to do away with sleep. And you can't think of a more vulnerable state for an organism to be in than to be asleep. And so you would think that if there had been any ability for evolution to circumvent the sleep process, they would have done it. And, and they haven't figured it out. And e- even, you know, like uh, uh, we had some goats last year and apparently like goats and horses, um, they will sleep standing up. And what, what happens is one half of their brain is technically asleep and the other half is awake. And sometimes they will lay down or do other things and actually sleep fully. But they, they will also, you know, sleep in a, ha- a bilobal, you know, kind of kind of state. And although they're more uh aware of the environment than being fully asleep, they're still in a, a fairly precarious state, like if a predator were to arrive. And so if there was some way to work around that, evolution would have figured it out for sure. And, and the fact that it didn't kind of suggest that it, it's really important. And if you order things out, you could really make an argument that it's air and then water and then light or sleep that are the important factors as far as how rapidly you could die. The Guinness Book of World Records no longer allows people to entertain an attempt at staying awake for longer and longer periods of time. The reason being is that the last two people who tried to do that at between 9 and 11 days, both of them died. And so you can jump a rocket motorcycle over the Grand Canyon. You can juggle flaming chainsaws. But they will not let you attempt an unbroken, you know, uh, sleep deal, and and nobody really knows what happens to those folks. Like there was no obvious pathology for them to die, but they stayed up until they couldn't stay up. They went to sleep and they never woke up. They just died in their sleep, and there was absolutely no no uh, discernible pathology that they could find at those wow, times. Just, a, just so it, imagine it, what that does to a person on a daily on the daily grind that's not right. getting enough sleep. Right. And, I mean, and it, it, you're yeah, tinkering it, with death. <laughs> this is not a you, joke. <laughs> you really are. And, you know, I, I could make an argument that you probably age like a third. If you're consistently like two to three hours a night underslept, you're probably aging like a third faster than what you should otherwise. And you are insulin resistant and highly inflamed. And you're kind of crazy, too. Like you, you're kind of schizophrenic and out of your head um dr parsley makes the case that just an hour of consistent short sleep over the course of a week so one week each night you're kind of short slept one hour you are as cognitively and physically impaired as if you were a 0.1 blood alcohol level and so technically 50 percent of the people that are on the roadway at any given moment are as impaired as if they had been drinking but it's from sleep not alcohol that's scary. That is scary. Yeah. Yeah. And it explains why people especially drive like considering, idiots. Especially considering, I was going to say, especially considering people at 100% power might not be that bright anyway. So. <laughs> right, 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 right. All right. So I wanted to uh, take this sleep idea and I want to roll this into my advice for my jujitsu brothers out there. This is the one piece of advice um, I try to give people. And they just look at me kind of sideways, cross-eyed, is I have three little kids. They're in jujitsu. 
I sit around with dads. We're all talking. A lot of the dads are Jits players. They're like 35 and up, 40 and up, 45 and up. You know, this is the old man Jits. And um, some of them know that I have tinkered with health and nutrition ideas for a while. So we talk about ideas of how to improve their jujitsu. And my number one advice is to uh, focus on their sleep. But they want harder. Mm-hmm. They want harder advice, I think. They want to know how many more days per week they can work out. You know? Do you run into this a lot? They want to jujitsu four days a week. They want to strength train three days a week. And I'm trying to develop just some subtle hints, tips, techniques for old man jits players. How to how to dial it back and get some gains. Could you help us with a little bit? Yeah, I'll try to do that. Um, I, I just got my purple belt, and so at, at age 45, so I, I possibly have a, a decent amount of credibility in this thing. Like, you have to really meter out your volume and intensity, and I, I think that your recommendation there is is just spot on. Like, I really can't think of a better... So if, if the person wants to do boarding and they want to do strength training two or three days a week, which I think two is probably plenty, but, you, you know, whatever... Um, but uh, if you want to be able to do that, your best chance at doing that starts with taking care of your sleep. When, it, when the sun goes down, you dim all the lights in the house, you put on some blue blockers, your bedroom is blacked out like a Kentucky trailer park, and you, you protect <laughs> your sleep at gunpoint. And, and yeah. that's just it. And, and again, you know, like selling sleep should be as easy as selling sex. Like it feels good. It makes you feel good. It, it, it makes you look better. <laughs> you, you know, you, you perform- there is no greater performance enhancing substance you could take relative to sleep. You could be on a massive amount of steroids and growth hormone. And if we short sleep you, this stuff's not going to do anything. I mean, I had, absolutely mm-hmm. nothing. I think or, I or saw, comparatively. Yeah. I think I saw a quote from Craig Zielinski. Sleep is steroids. It is. It is. And so, you know, that is kind of you know, piece number one, piece number two, then definitely food becomes more and more important as you train harder. And as you age, there is just no two ways about it. I I would argue that good nutrition can take a decade off of your, your, uh, chronological age. If you want it, possibly even more. And I would say like, and conversely, Bad diet and bad sleep will add a decade to your chronological age. Mm-hmm. So if you're 30, but you want to perform like a 40 or 50 year old, eat poorly and sleep poorly. And that that's what you'll get. And then the flip side of that, if you were 40 or 45 and you want to perform like a, a fit 30 year old, then take care of your food and anti-inflammatory diet, paleo type approach, um, uh, I, I'm not so convinced that a ketogenic level is going to support this, although uh, uh, Alessandro Ferreri is is going to work with me on trying to do a targeted keto approach with this. But that's going to be a lot of work to to ramp up to that, and I'll keep you posted on that. But, um, you know, anti-inflammatory, paleo-type diet, appropriate carbs, um, good to go. Like, that's going to be phenomenal. And then on the training side, to the degree that you can devote more time and effort, and this is tough from school to school. Like some schools run kind of a knuckleheaded program where it's like you you go over a technique or twenty techniques, but you, you barely do any drilling on it. There's really no drilling. It, it's just kind of like form 
integration and then you live roll and, and then spar, uh, I, spar 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 yeah. yeah yeah spar 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 and and what needs to be done is a lot of chunking where you take these elements let's say one person wants to work side control top and they have two specific things they're trying to work on they're either trying to get a cross side arm bar you know so far side arm arm bar or they're trying to get them out those are the two things that they're going to work on the person on the bottom is trying to get to an edge and either replace the person to guard or get back control, get an underhook and get back control. That's it. That is the totality of what you play with. That's the totality of the tools you have to play with. And you drill that in, in five minute or 10 minute blocks, whatever, whatever you want. It could be two minute blocks. And, and you start things off probably about 60 or 70% and you, you approach it at a aerobic level and maybe in the beginning, you agree that like, okay, top guy wins the first time, then bottom guy wins the second time. And you do a couple of five-minute rounds with that where it's back and forth. You've got a live kind of resisting person, but you're being cooperative there. You're getting some reps. And then you're like, okay, let's ratchet it up to about an 85 90% level. And I'm really going to resist, and you're really going to resist. We're going to go hard, but it's not that street fight deal, which people get into that mode in jets. You can feel it when the person has shifted from hard rolling to it's a fight. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and you just can't go there. And uh, just from a memory and a motor learning and printing standpoint, if you stay more in that aerobic zone, you do not stimulate the fight or flight process. And so you imprint memories far better if you go super glycolytic if your lactate levels go super high and it's a fight or flight process it's literally like a lobotomy for your 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 brainstem where you're trying to input these these motor patterns so all the work that you did kind of got you an okay workout but as far as improving your skill set it literally did nothing and you could almost argue that it maybe was counterproductive because it may overwrite some of the stuff that you've been trying to 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 basically imprint that code into your brainstem so you've just got to ratchet the volume and the intensity down or at least the intensity and slowly you know grade volume over time and so like lots of lots and lots of positional drilling lots and lots of flow rolling and again, the flow rolling is such that you, you do a catch and release, a back and forth. So like if I'm starting in turtle and my partner is on top, we'll say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of start things off. So like I do a knee tap, knee pick and, you know, some shoulder drive and I take him down to his side and then he does a, a you know, kind of a, a shrimp and a, a get an edge and he gets an underhook so that my side control, he goes to my back, and then once he's on my back, he sinks in some hooks and starts doing a choke, and then he allows me to get out of the choke. I do my proper thing of putting my back on the ground and then scooting my hips out and everything, and and we just flow. And yeah, you, yeah. you you know, it's like I give you one, you give me one, and we go back and forth. And you could go at an hour at that pace, and it, it's barely above walking as far as the aerobic demands, and you will get thousands and thousands of reps in a relaxed meditative flow state the problem is that it's hard to find partners that will do that that are you know that are not lug nuts and and mm-hmm. that you can talk them into really enjoying kind of a flow role like that yeah, one and thing then, I, oh, yeah, yeah yeah i would this is this idea that when you first started you you use the term chunking and if someone will look up the learning how to learn uh, right idea 
the concept, chunking, mixed with this learning how to learn. Uh, when you're in this flow state, you're using diffuse thinking. When you're in fight or flight, you're in focused thinking. You right. Know, live or die, right? But when you're in that flow state, you're using diffuse thinking. It's like... um pinball machine but with soft bouncers you know and you mm-hmm. you're, you're mm-hmm. you've got a lot of action firing and then you're going to learn these repetitions and you're going to you know obtain better muscle memory reflex uh this is this is fantastic thanks for this this is excellent oh yeah totally totally and i'm actually writing a note to myself about uh relearning that uh the the rereading that art of learning because um, it was just some yeah, great. Yeah, there was a, a Coursera. Yeah. Do you know that Coursera? Yeah, yeah. Class learning how to learn or whatever. Yeah, that was a. I've had so many people uh, recommend that to me, and uh, it's really fantastic. Oh, cool. Yeah, you I know, just um, pulled, yeah, I wanted check to check that out. Yeah, go back just for a minute on food. I know it's been played to death, but um, in this jujitsu thing, uh, these lo- a lot of the dads aren't coming from a paleo background or anything like that and they really don't know how to eat a friend of mine looked up he wanted to know how to fuel himself at 45 and weight lift and jits so he looked up hicks and gracie you know hickson eats like yogurt some fruit uh maybe some nuts i mean it it's kind of absurd right so mm-hmm. you gotta mm-hmm. be careful where you get your inspirations from. My buddy was intermittent right, fasting, right. breaking his fasts with fruit, and wondering. He's like, "Man, I'm just, uh, I just have no energy. I'm lethargic. I just can't. I'm gonna get killed out there." I'm like, well, hell yeah, <laughs> you you gotta eat like a man. All right, right. Eat right, some protein. Right. Break that fast with protein. The fat will follow, and then sort it out. But start eating. Start eating big. Start eating protein. And don't be afraid. And stop the pussy thinking. If you're out there fighting, you're not a you're not a child. You're not a you're not you know afraid of the world. You're fighting a man. Eat like right. one too. You know. Right. 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 I'm not normally the person who talks like this, but when you're talking to fighters and they want to eat yogurt fruit cups like what the fuck how could you have this right, dissonance right. in your mind right eat a steak <laughs> and some potatoes <laughs> you know it's like yeah when needed yeah, yeah. if if yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah uh that's all i had on the food thing i just wanted to blurt that out no it's it, it's a it's an important thing and i mean there's a million different ways to kind of skin the cat but it, it, you know it's funny because i kind of spin out on this stuff all the time. And if you just do kind of like, um, a, a Google search, you go best diet for, and you put in jujitsu, like the, the return funny enough, like that you get again and again, vegan kind of pops up here and there. There are some people that, that get some mileage out of it. I think at least for a time, but it's the paleo diet. It's funny. You know, like I keep trying to skin it into a super low carb way of eating and there may be some ways of doing it, but even then, uh, you know, like some people like Alessandro Ferreri, um, he's using a targeted ketogenic diet. So you generally eat low carb, you have to do it for two to three months to fully adapt. And then you do some carbs immediately before the training session and you need to, uh, weigh it against the volume and intensity, which you're going to do, which I'm intrigued by, but it also, 
feels like a giant calculus problem. Yeah, it's, it, I don't. It, it just it, like if it's if you're doing keto for some therapeutic reason and you happen to be a jits player, go ahead and tinker till death. For the right. average guy, let's let this go, please. Come yeah, on, yeah. let's focus I, I, on, we need energy to take care of our children, have some good roles, get nice, big, and strong, have clear minds, you know, let, let this let this keto thing go. Right. No, in, I, I, in I, I need to, instance, but, yeah. but, but uh, you, you know, and I've kind of found a sweet spot of 75 to 120 grams of carbs on training days. Um, if I'm more inactive or traveling that I may actually drop stuff down to that ketogenic level and drop in some MCT to help kind of goose the ketogenic state. And that's been really good. Like I, I don't suffer the blood sugar peaks and falls that I, I have in the past. And, uh, man, I have good, I have good performance when I'm out on the mat and I'm rolling like no, no dramas with that. So mm-hmm. that, that has been quite interesting. Do your kids do, uh, martial arts? Um, you know, Zoe did a couple of months of what, what I would call the fantasy martial art, like kind of Taekwondo stuff. And I, mm-hmm. I finally, um, she liked it. And this is where I was kind of like, oh, maybe it's good. Cause he did a little tumbling in it and, you know, uh, uh, some acrobatics and it was good movement. Like they actually had a, a good little workout in there. She also does swimming and gymnastics and, uh, and she liked it, but I was like, man, what they're learning sucks, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, hmm. I, I was like, I wanted to learn some Thai boxing at some point. Um, most of the jujitsu classes around here really don't take the kids until they are five and she's just turning five, um, okay. actually this, yeah. this coming weekend. And so we're, we're, uh, I'm looking at getting her into that and she's like, dad, I don't want to do jujitsu. And I'm like, oh no, 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 it's martial arts. It's martial arts, you know? And so we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I, I don't think I'm going to have too many like hard and fast rules for my kids, but because we're both, both girls are going to be women. I, I think two things, both of them will obtain at least a purple belt in jujitsu and both of them will have a, a solid tie boxing background. They will know how to punch, kick, knee, elbow, and clinch. And, uh, they're also going to learn how to shoot a gun. And, um, <laughs> those are the things that for me, they're, there they're went, going there to... went a large portion of our international audience. Thanks. Robert. Oh yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, yeah. Well, you know, if we, if we live, hey, at least it was uh, at the end of the episode. So we got them. Right. Yeah, that's good. Right. Right. Well, of course, if they move abroad, then they won't have access to guns because these, right. uh, then it'll, it'll be a non-issue. Yeah. yeah. It'll be a non-issue. Yeah. Yeah. Supposedly. Yeah. Right. I, I just, right. one of the reasons I asked about children and, uh, martial arts was actually about feeding kids. Um, I kind of do a, uh, even though my babies aren't babies anymore, I still kind of operate on a baby led weaning approach. Whereas <laughs> I let my kids mm-hmm. be the guide. I have my house free of shite. There's just food in my house. And so right. we open up the fridge. I start hauling meat out. They dig through the veggie drawer. Someone goes out to the pantry and grabs some tubers and we just cook foods and we just make a big mess of food. Many options, cabbage, salads, fermented foods, you know, carbohydrates of you know, various sources. And uh, I just let them lead the way. Right, right. And it's, yeah. It's, it yeah. works out really great. Um, although some kids kind of get a little narrow, uh, you know. My one son would live on rice if I would allow him, but I've got to right. 
nudge him in the right direction. So shit ain't right, easy. Right. As uh, right, it's not. It's not. But you know what? I, I forget it, uh, the guy. I had a guy that I interviewed. I'm blanking on his name, but he's a anthropology professor. Um, he was on the Great Human Race, the Nat, Nat Geo show really really cool dude oh man that, and, that ep- uh, i know i know that was an awesome episode that guy was fantastic yeah, yeah. yeah and, gonna, and you know he yeah. made a really interesting point which was that he focuses mainly on getting the kids what he knows they need and then he's not too concerned about what happens after that i mean it's again it's not you know you try to have generally good options around there but instead of being you know mainly focus on like okay they're getting some liver once a week they're getting fruits and vegetables at at most meals they are getting adequate protein so it's like okay if they have a gluten-free peanut butter and jelly sandwich after they already had like four egg yolks and blueberries and blah 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 then it's like not that big of a deal. Like I'm, I'm not going to like sweat bullets over that. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, this is crazy. I just typed in your podcast page to see if I could track that guy's name down and right on the cover here, episode 249, you had Barbara Oakley on your show. Yeah. Yeah. Which she was a, a critical person in, in this Coursera deal. Yeah. Too. In yeah. The learning yeah. how to learn. Yeah. yeah. Well, son yeah. of a bitch. Look at that. Where have I been? <laughs> Sorry. I missed that one. It's a goodie. It's a goodie. Uh, she was amazing. I gotta find this yeah. guy, yeah. Uh, Bill Schindler. That was him, right, Doctor Bill Schindler? Yes, Bill Schindler. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that was a uh, episode three fifty seven for folks to look that one up. That was one of my favorite episodes ever of your show. By the way, I don't know Thank why, you. but that one just really hit. And um, I do like the new approach, where you are reaching out to others for their expertise, whereas for quite a while. You were just answering questions, which is fine and awesome, but I like the new approach of the show. It's gone through like three oh, three complete evolutions, I'd say. It has, and you know, before too long, there's there's going to be either a period question mark or exclamation point put on it. Like the the Paleo Solution as a as a podcast format has kind of done what I, about as much as I'm interested in doing, and I am still interested in doing some. Uh, podcast kind of media type work but uh, uh, just that clearly I love paleo like I, I love all that stuff but I, I really have some interests above and beyond just like paleo diet type stuff so mm-hmm. that that thing is going to get wrapped up and then I'm going to gotcha. birth something new and it'll probably be like a bi-monthly instead of uh, once a week um, I, I just have some other projects I want to tinker with and fiddle with and everything but yeah thank you like it's it's yeah, a ton it's of fun excellent. and I, yeah yeah. What, what, what about if you did make it a little less often? Let's say, take the Dan Carlin approach. You know, he's, he, you know, hardcore history. Right. You're right. looking at a podcast that comes out quarterly, which is heavily researched and very, very in depth. Take that to health, nutrition, wellness, sustainability, and let's uh, take that content up a notch for those of us who've been around a while. We don't need to rehash these arguments from seven years ago, you know? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea, you know, it, uh, being able to do a deeper deeper dive on it because that's part of what what's onerous for me. And it, so we the show started off as purely a question and answer deal, but all too quickly 
the questions were either highly repetitious, which funny enough, like when I would ask people, the, the listeners, I'm like, are you guys bored of this? And they're like, no, we want more. And I'm like, God, it's the same shit same. that we've been talking about. But you know, it's like, okay. Yeah, all right. Um, but, but it also, um, as this kind of paleo diet concept made it out to the masses, the questions became exponentially more complex. And all of my answers were like, it depends here's the blood work I would do. Now you need to find a healthcare provider. And so I, I just felt like it was kind of a, a limp we need way of dealing with all that stuff. And so then we shifted more to that interview format, which we we've been running that for quite some time. And, uh, yeah, yeah. It, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm bouncing around some different ideas as to what, what I'll, I'll do next in that kind of podcasting space, but I'm, I'm right, definitely cool. excited to, to, to do something, but do something different. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. wondering where this was all going to, all going to lead. So, um, I did convince you to, I'm going to, I'm going to take credit for this to go ahead and present at, uh, the ancestral health symposium this year, mm-hmm. all credit to me for recruiting you. Just, awesome. I just wanted awesome. the world to know that, even though I made it up. <laughs> <laughs>